0: hello and welcome back to the dash podcast i'm your host trey gamage and joining me today is the ceo and co-founder of restore more claudine miles she's a friend that i've been following for a year and some change and i'm so excited to have seen her growth from up close and afar and to have her here to join us on the dash podcast her and her team kimberly milton and their uh, digital marketing strategist nafari lynn Regis, I hope I'm saying that right. Are Narafi. Doing... Narafi.
1: Narafi, yep. Narafi.
0: Thank you. Narafi Lynn Regis are doing a great job um, in the work. So I'm I'm excited to have you, Claudine, and excited to to have a good conversation with you. So how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing so good and I'm so excited to be here in this space and just reconnect with you in this way.
0: Good, good, good. Likewise, likewise. You know, we were uh just talking about a moment ago, I think just Having a moment to network with entrepreneurs, um, young black entrepreneurs that are, are doing conscious work, you know, doing restorative practices, SEL, cultural responsive practices. It's been really cool to, to see different Instagram pages or connect with different folks like yourself. You know, we connected through an entrepreneur mastermind. Right. right around the time that the pandemic started. And, and I, I think we were in a similar position, but I know I was changing my business was just taking full time role as a dean of students and trying to figure out, you know, how everything was was going to work. And so that mastermind was a really cool opportunity of accountability, and um, kind of community that that really helped us. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience or the role you played in those conversations.
1: Yeah, so uh, truth be told, that was such an interesting time when I reflect back on it. Um, It probably literally started in um, April of 2020, so like fresh into the pandemic. You know, we're all still thinking this is going to be a couple of weeks, but Mm this will be a good way for us to gather and kind of keep that entrepreneurial muscle working. Um, And at that time, we had all these big plans for what we were supposed to do, right? If the world was open, but everything was literally closed at that point, including schools, which is our target client, right? And so we were like, what does that look like for our training? We train educators and adults. How are we going to do that if we can't physically be in schools? Mm -hmm. And it eventually dawned on us, like, we're going to have to pivot what we do and literally become virtual teachers. So just like every educator in the classroom across America had to learn overnight, so did we. Um, Cause we simply just still had clients on the books that expected their services um, and didn't care about our learning curve. And I, I credit the mastermind um, to so much of our development at that time, because we were struggling with some of these questions and mm-hmm. had a community to be able to go through and say like, Oh, have you thought about this? Has anyone had this problem? What have y'all learned? And um, yeah. I love that space.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. I agree. I mean, the, the, it was, it was very well put together, um, you know, Jen Owen, shout out to Jen. I know you, you were a facilitator a lot of times as well. It was very well put together. And, and I think we you know may have met for a couple months, three, four months, um, and then everybody kind of got back to work. And so, you know, but it, it's kind of cool to point to that time and, and be able to look a year and a half later and see you winning $15,000 pitch competitions with um, the, the Atlanta Hawks, the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative, in partnership with the Atlanta Hawks, the tip-off competition. Yes, um, it happened. Great job. Congratulations. I want to talk more about your, your work, but maybe you can uh, kind of unpack it a little bit and telling the story about how you guys won this pitch here.
1: Yeah, so I briefly mentioned it, I guess, in the last question, but I'm an educational consultant, have an organization called Restore More, and ultimately we train uh, teachers, school leaders, and parents. We help them get better at restorative practices, anti-racism, and social-emotional learning, uh, depending on what they really feel ready to tackle, and so Um, With this pitch opportunity, it came into my inbox, like many opportunities, but oftentimes entrepreneurs are super busy and we have to uh, prioritize. But when it comes to getting free money, Claudine is going to make that time, okay? Uh, Because we can raise all the funds and we can generate sales, but it's really so much better to spend other people's money, especially when it's (laughs) for good, right? Um, And so when I saw this opportunity, I was like, oh, all we have to do is pitch and if we make it through you know, several rounds, then we have an opportunity to earn $15,000. And in my head, I didn't really look at the other prizes. I was like, $15,000, we could wow. win that. And I'm focused on the prize. So luckily, I was in another... Accelerator had been literally working for six months on like the perfect pitch deck. So I was like, see, look at how God will position you for the right thing on the right time. Because when I opened that email, it was like the pitch deck is due in 48 hours. And I was like, Oh, that's fine. Cause I have one. And so I sent my pitch deck in and like crossed my fingers. Um, Didn't hear for a while, kind of forgot about it as happens to be, you know, with the busyness of entrepreneurship, you're like, okay, I got to focus on the next thing. Mm -hmm. And if it comes up, it's like, great. And so it came up in my inbox again, saying like, you've made it to the next round. And the funny thing is when I got that email, I was out of the country with shabby internet. And I was so (laughs) afraid that, you know, I was about to have a horrible Wi Fi situation and be breakdancing on there and cutting out. And luckily, We did a little Wi-Fi upgrade and we were okay. So I was able to pitch to three members of the Hawks. Um, They asked really good questions. I was nervous. Mm. I felt like it was okay because I didn't even finish the whole pitch. But apparently it was decent enough, right? We're super critical. I know I can be super critical of my own Mm. self. Um, It was decent enough to make it to the final round. And so we got to go to the Flatiron Building in Atlanta, um, share for two and a half minutes, um, wow. about seven things for our business so that's how they get you they're like you're mm-hmm. gonna work for this money because you're gonna have to essentially um, get so familiar with this speech that you can say it in a way that flows and okay. is personable and so they wanted us to talk about our story you know the traction we've garnered since we've started um, the impact and then what do we need the the 15,000 for and mm-hmm. so for us it's like, Growing out our team, we have about 20 facilitators that we contract with when we're doing trainings uh, because we need support. Like there's only two of us uh, building the content and having the sales meetings. But when it comes to delivery of content, we are just growing so fast that we need additional Mm -hmm. folks to do that. And so that 15,000 will allow for us to pay our facilitators, um, get them a uniform, formalize some things on our end, fly them to some of the contracts we're landing now. So it's really nice to be able to do that. Like I said, with somebody else's money, not to mention, uh, it really ultimately like builds so much community when you win an opportunity like that, Mm. Um, because I wasn't, you know, closely connected with WEI, which is the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative that was um, founded in Atlanta when Mayor Bottoms Uh, Mayor Lancebombs, excuse me, took office. And so it's like this whole initiative in Atlanta, trying to pump up black women businesses. And I just wasn't connected, but now I am. And I'm a part of that community. And so it's a, it's a nice way to just continue to grow and network.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a really cool story. All the, all the pieces of the story, you know, from how you're able to use the funds, how you set yourself up for success with this accelerator and um, you know, I guess even the residual, like the networking piece that you get on the back end. But you know, knowing you for the little bit of time that I've had, like that networking restore. When I think of restorative, I think of community, you know, and I think of really being together and building a bond. And so I, I can understand, like for you in building a pitch or or winning that that pitch competition, that as much of a humbug as it was you are really prepared for it because that's what your business is. That's who you all are. You're ready to engage. You're ready to be a part of the community and network. W- where does that mindset come from? And on the other end, you know, I've heard you talk about pitches before. So like what role has knowing that other people's money is available because funding is hard, you know, especially sure is. a small company. When did knowing that pitches were available and like how much of that should you be doing?
1: That's such a good question. So I guess I will start by saying, um, if you are comfortable with public speaking, you should absolutely look into pitching um, because it's literally using those skills to advocate for your business to again, get free funding. And so there's obviously other ways. Um, Grants is another avenue, but I think it's helpful to be transparent with people like Restore More applies for grants all the time. We get denied for grants all the time. So what we have learned over the last three years is When our business stands up against others in these grant pools, it's not looking as strong. It could be because it's not tech-based and like tech ed is the Mm -hmm. thing right now. It could be because we're for-profit. What I need to determine is um, how do I best use my time and where do I stay and focus my energy where we've had traction. And so we've done three pitch competitions in three years and we've won all three. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I'm a former science teacher. The evidence is clear. I've gotten, I've applied for probably at least 50 grants um over just the last year right from today to 2020 Mm -hmm. today and um we've gotten one we've Mm. gotten one and it was for 2500 right Mm. so if I know I can utilize my public speaking skills and make 15,000 that's just the easier equation for me and so we're starting to shift our resources right we'll still apply for the grants because we save our applications and so we have the answers pre-made and so a lot of times it's really like copying and pasting, setting ourselves up for success, we'll continue that practice and just try to get better at it. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, Claudia is going to try to pitch in every opportunity yeah. that she can, because it's, it's working. So why not?
0: That makes sense. So is it, would it be that, because I was I was going to say, like, are you going to, do you think the payout will ever match up from a grant end? Um But, you know, the pitch, you did one a year over three years, and each of them is a win is is it the reason that you only did one because you're only finding these things when you're looking for them or is that is are they kind of sporadic and it takes that much time to prepare for
1: so we applied for those three because they were kind of on our radar at that time so a lot of it's network right the very first pitch we ever did with was was with plywood um presents and what's funny is that's actually where i met jen and jen is who has connected me to you see small world so uh that was the very first time i ever pitched and i was in one of their like training classes so i learned through them and then they were like we have this opportunity cool i'm gonna do it and then the second one same thing it was through teach for america i was in a teach for america cohort for entrepreneurs had this opportunity um we are looking for that much more regularly. And even when we do apply, we still don't get everyone, right? Those are some of the behind the scenes things that I think people don't see. Yeah. Uh, there's tons of pitch competitions that we put our name in the hat for, we just don't get. Um, but it's being persistent and like not stopping. Uh, Cause when someone does say yes, you can really level up. So why not uh, keep at it?
0: Absolutely. I love that. I mean, that that means a lot. You know, I think a, a thing that's important for you too, um, and I, I've I face I still face this myself. Like as a restorative practices SEL anti-racist. Sure, you can give me a book, but this isn't something you can see. This isn't this isn't some where kid answers A B C D, and you get a score back. Like how do you how do you make something that's social and emotional? tangible in a pitch or or you know in a grant for people to to see it and buy into it
1: so uh, for us it's like what people don't know is like the jargon that educators use so people don't n- know what restorative practices is mm-hmm. most people don't most people don't even know what scl is they're like oh that buzzword yeah. but i don't really know what that is so what our responsibility is when pitching is like putting it in layman's terms, saying it simply. And I think so many times entrepreneurs go in there trying to use all the like fancy yeah. business words. And it's like, no, just make it simple, make it plain and make people feel something. Hmm. And we start doing that by saying what the problem is, because that's something that people can identify with. So with our pitch, yeah. the first thing we talked about was, hey, I'm a mom. And I've been an assistant principal, an educator, and a leader at home due to a pandemic, and I didn't ask for it, right? Because so many people in that room, the the judges themselves were parents. And they were like, yes, I became a COVID teacher and I don't like it, I hate it here, it's ghetto. And I was like, none of us like it. And guess what? When your kids go back, they will have suffered trauma as a result of Mm -hmm. not being in school and teachers have to deal with that. And they're not prepared because they're not adequately trained. How do we solve that problem? Boom. We offer services to that end. And so like, if you start by naming the problem first, more people are going to be able to identify and understand, even if it's not their personal problem, they might have someone else that that problem resonates with. And then I can explain, okay, here's my business model. Here's how I find the right customer. Here's how much traction, but first I've got to get your heart. And I do that by explaining the problem.
0: Yeah. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, you know, the problem and then, and then you could bring the solution. Because a lot of times I think as a consultant, um, as any business provider, you have to understand the problem that your client doesn't understand. Right. You know, you, you, you're you pointing out that, hey, this hurts right here. You, I know you don't really see it right now, but if you just fix this one thing, how would that change your life? And then you're, you're showing them that part. Is it difficult to um, be an expert and have to say things so simply like how do you like that's a tough
1: it, it, hurdle. Um yeah. so like you had asked about, you know, are y'all doing pitches more regularly? And part of the reason we're probably not doing them more regularly, one for not being asked, but two, because the bulk of our work is training teachers and leaders. And parents in schools and so we come up against you know this concept often Mm -hmm. Um, it it can be challenging things that we're doing aren't tangible right social emotional learning restorative practices they're like these theories and so our job as consultants is like how do we break it down into tangible actions bite-sized transferable skills that teachers can do and so what i'm grateful for is like my experience in being a coach for years as an assistant principal and coaching countless leaders, um, aspiring leaders and educators. And so I understand how small something has to be for someone to actually learn it. Right. Mm -hmm. So we take restorative practices, for example, we break it down into a series of six sessions. So when an educator is, um, coming through our training they're getting six sessions on restorative practices they're not getting like this gloss over they're learning about affective statements they're learning about restorative questions how to create logical consequences how to have uh, proactive circles or reactive circles and so by the time they finish this work they have learned all these tangible skills and we embed practice in our workshop like Mm. If I'm going to make the promise to say, by the time you're done working with me through these six sessions, your school will be able to implement restorative practices, then I have to see you doing it because I got to give you feedback so that you can grow. And so every one of our sessions has actual practice where adults are getting up, they're having model conversations, they're doing Mm -hmm. scenarios, they're rewriting scripts, um, and then we're walking, circulating and giving feedback like any other high-functioning classroom. So I think that's just one of those things that... Uh, make sure we keep our promise like if I tell you I'm gonna solve your problem then I have to be really intentional from beginning to end
0: mm-hmm. about how you're gonna do that yeah I would agree so I'm gonna take it back around we got the entrepreneur side now I'm gonna take it back to the classroom and so I, I know you were a part of the KIP network
1: correct I was I was I was at a KIP school for 10 years
0: okay so so talk to me about the transition from actually being that school leader and then transitioning into providing what you found was necessary for your school or what was missing from other schools as well?
1: So in 2018, at my final role at the school, I was actually the Dean of Restorative Practices. Um, We had transitioned the school from what was a punitive school um, Hmm. that literally used to use like a paycheck system to monitor students' behavior. Um, and we transitioned from that starting point to a restorative school where if kids caused um, any disturbance or major incident, they could request a circle. Or if a mm-hmm. teacher and a student had a conflict, they could request a circle. And, you know, what I think I'm most proud of is the statistics that we were able to um you know, get as a result of the work we did, like we saw suspensions drop 27% in one year, which is huge, like any double digit growth in the middle school level, um, particularly for the historically underserved neighborhood we were in. Uh, But additionally, like the stories that I have from those years are just so powerful. Like kids who had conflict at home would come to school and say, hey, I got into a fight with my mom and I was a little aggressive with her. I bucked at her and I need to fix this, but I don't know how. Can you call her and see if she'll have a circle with me? So like this practice like permeated our school building, became a community norm. And you know, the typical black mom is like, I could cut you if you buck at me, right? Um, And so when I called this parent, I was like, I need you to come in. She was like, did you hear what that child did? Yes, yes, I did. And he was wrong, but he needs to make it right. Would you be willing to come in? And she was like, absolutely. And at the end, we were literally all in the office crying, a hot mess. Uh, But it was like seeing our kids. And again, I was in a school that was 100% um, Black children. Seeing our kids learn these types of high level social emotional learning skills yeah. is just going to catapult them for the experiences yeah. they'll have as young adults. I think yeah. about how hard it was for me initially when I became a professional to learn how to have a difficult conversation. Baby, yeah. I used to avoid that thing. Yeah. I would hide from colleagues that I needed to have like the crucial conversation with it's yeah. because I didn't know how to do that. And these young people literally know how to do that. They have a whole structure. Um, And it was beautiful to see that take hold and become the culture of our school.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, What do you feel like was the most difficult part in transitioning from a punitive behavior system to a restorative one? Because I'll say, you know, even if you make modifications to a punitive behavior system, it might feel like you're doing right, but I'm... Like what are the alternatives to suspension? If if a kid gets in a fight, what else can I do? Okay, after the restorative practice, then what? So like, what are some? What were some of the most difficult parts in changing from yeah. punitive to restorative?
1: I think the hardest part of any change work, um, and you'll see this in like the, the research findings reflected from it, is like mindset, shifting mindset. You got to remember we're in a society and country that loves punishment. Somebody does something, we're like lock them up. If it's real bad, they're like give them the death penalty. And so there is this obsession with punishment. We hear about it in schools all the time. Oh, so and so did this. Well, what's going to happen to him? What's his consequence? Like. There is this innate desire for many educators to want to see students severely punished. And so when I'm Mm -hmm. training adults, I say, there's something wrong in that. And when I ask educators, well, why do you feel like this student needs to be punished severely to learn a lesson? Oftentimes the retort that I hear is, well, that's what I got. And I turned out fine. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "Mm, but did you really? But did you really turn out fine? You're in your middle aged Years you're chastising a chastising a child and you look physically upset because you've lost control of your emotions. Are you actually okay? Yeah. Right. If we're supposed to be emotional constants, if we're supposed to maintain our control, our composure, and we're modeling for students what it actually looks like to be emotionally stable. Um, I think a lot of educators have made it harder for us to do that because it's challenging when you're triggered, right? And to be fair to educators, like, don't get me wrong, I've lost my cool, I've had all of those moments. Um, Educators need to be trained on how to reduce, um, you know, their frustrations when they're triggered, understanding what Mm -hmm. their triggers are with students. They need to understand how to best work with students who have um, exposure to trauma. Like, there is so much more training that teachers need and yeah. we know it doesn't happen when they come out of pre-service college programs and we throw them into classrooms and we're like, why don't you have it figured out? Or why did you do this to that student? Well, who taught them to do anything differently? Mm-hmm. I came into the classroom and I saw my peers yelling to maintain respect. And I said, well, that's what we do here. We're yellers. And so I I literally modeled what I saw. Yeah. And then eventually at some point I just had this pivotal moment. Where I was like, this is exhausting. I'm gonna pop a blood vessel in here. I'm gonna pass out. I'm gonna have a heart attack young. I'm all set when I realized I could actually use like humor and love and then get my babies to do anything that I wanted. And I literally mean anything. Like we'd set these crazy goals. Like we're going to get a 90 average on the test and everybody was studying and we had a phone Mm -hmm. tree and then we're going to call so-and-so to make sure they studied. And guess what? If they got higher than a 90, Miss Varela was going to cook them breakfast. And I brought in my whole griddle and I cooked bacon and eggs. Like I used to do very unconventional things, to show students that they could get unconventional results. And I think a lot of educators just have lost that love for wow. the work.
0: Jeez, um, Jeez.
1: But it matters. It so matters that we continuously learn as educators how to best prepare ourselves for the students of today. And they're not the students that we had five years ago. They're not even the students that we had five years before that. Like they are constantly evolving and I don't know why we assume we don't have to either.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that that goes into changes in a lot of ways, and I, I don't, I haven't jumped down the generational gap in a long time, but I think that's a good place to point out how generations like to hold power, and so sometimes baby boomers in particular, in this case, are are at their wit's end almost, and, and almost retired, you know, or, or getting up there, and even, your, you know, your top end of that Generation X, um, they're kind of getting up there now too, and so the transition to power has kind of skipped a generation. It's gone from baby boomers to millennials more so than it has baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and then, you know, Z is now rising in there. So I think that that skip in leadership or that gap in leadership, you know, there there might be less leaders um, in, a, in that generation, if you will, than there is now coming up in the millennials who are just as large as, um, baby boomer so i know that's a whole nother kind of idea but it looks like it makes sense to you
1: i was actually watching a video that you just did on like this this gap and i find it Mm. so interesting because i am a millennial Um, I always feel like if you're an older millennial, you try to, like, classify, I'm closer to this side, so I'm in my mid-30s, and I definitely grew up being a part of both worlds. Like, I didn't Mm -hmm. have my first cell phone until I was 16 years old, Mm. right? Grandma had the rotary. I had a TV. I had to get up and click, click, click. So, like, it's very easy for me to speak to folks from generations before me. I love learning from my elders. There's a high level of respect for my elders, right? And a lot of the values that they pass down are in me, right? Mm -hmm. As as most of us, we take what we value, we um, combine our own values, and that's what we pass down to our children. And so being that I entered the classroom at a very young age, I think it helped me because with the generation in front of me, I was able to speak their language, still be tech savvy, know the trending music or what have you um, and use that to build bridges. But the way sometimes I hear boomers speak about millennials or even those behind us, and I'm not even going to attempt to say their name. Is it (laughs) why? See, that's why I don't say, but um, them 19s and unders, I love them because they are so with it. Um, I don't want to curse. So I won't use my other colorful adult language, but they are with the beeps. Like they do not care if they believe they are right. They're going to fight tooth and nail for it. And I love it that they are um, yeah. so empowered to like be yeah. unapologetically themselves. I just think as the generation ahead of them, we do have a responsibility to continue to help cultivate and mold that leadership. Yeah. I had people that did that for me. Um, and a lot of times, as you get older, it's easy to like write them off. Oh, those young kids! Oh, those young kids! Well, mm-hmm. we have a responsibility to go back and lift up those young kids and support them instead of complaining about them. Because your generation was cutting up in a different way.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I I think you're I think you're right. But that that shows you. I meant so when I was in college in in 2011 um, to th- 2015, so I've been out six years. I got there ten years ago diversity and inclusion, but those are still buzzwords. Like I was on the diversity affairs council and we were the umbrella diversity organization over the school. There was like 89 organizations, but it wasn't the standard yet. You know, there, there wasn't, there wasn't an emphasis on, um, civil rights, gender rights, all kinds of equality, diversity. But when you look at today, what was a trend for my generation for this generation is a standard and it's not an option. Like for the kids I'm working with in classrooms, they really don't understand some of our racial differences. Like they really never seen a life where where things weren't as blended or whatever. So like they have a, a whole nother perspective that's greater, I would say, you know, and that's indicative of the change that we would like to see in our educators to adapt with them as well.
1: It's very interesting to see how these um, larger issues, you know, always kind of come back and play themselves out in schools. Um, And like you said, our our students of today are like very much adamant that I demand this respect and I deserve certain rights. um, And no longer are many of them just going to accept status quo. And I think that's a good thing because I think a lot of education needs to be reformed. And if it's gonna happen, it's gonna be this generation that like driving that change. Um, So it's kind of exciting.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring us to a close a little bit, um, even though I don't want to, um, and say, what, would, what, what is your role? What do you feel like is Restore Moore's role in bridging that gap for the next generation?
1: I think, I guess it's like upwards and downwards, right? I think, I think for folks that are older, our responsibility is helping them understand young people, how young people think the scientific premise behind what happens to the adolescent brain like they're not crazy they're going through a hormonal change that makes them crazy and that matters right it literally matters uh, because they're supposed to be behaving that way so if we understand that we can adjust and then I think for the for the youth right in the content that I'm developing in the ways that I'm training adults to work with youth for me it's making sure that we are empowering them that we are continuing to. Uh, create resources and tools that give them agency that allow them to be heard like one of our uh, popular products is the anti-racist circle kit and it's a set of restorative practice circle scripts that allow an educator to tackle tough topics with students and it doesn't center anyone's thoughts and opinions above the other it prioritizes student voice so it's open-ended questions It's not necessarily teaching these concepts, but just what are your thoughts on these concepts? Getting kids to think critically um, and building meaningful relationships. And through it, they're developing these social emotional learning skills, right? And so for me, it's putting products out like that that will ultimately allow kids to challenge, push back and think. Um, And like I said, for my adults, helping them understand young people just a little bit better because I genuinely believe like every single person right on this earth has a purpose. Um, And my job as an educator is to help the young people find their key. Like I have Mm. all the keys, I'm walking through the hall, I got all the keys, I'm that person on IG. to Tony, (laughs) and he's always on the walkie talkie, anywho. I got all the keys and my job is to figure out which key works for every kid and I can't give up until I try them all and so like that's how I've always looked at the work which is why when other people write kids off I'm like oh it's fine we just we've tried 53 interventions but we gotta try 54 because that's gonna be the one because there's only like seven keys left
0: Mm. Mm. that's dope I love it and Tony is hilarious I love watching those instagrams um and I'll agree I I call it Similarly, I call it facilitating purpose. I, I, I believe that my job and our job as educators, my job as a consultant, as a dean of students, is to make it easier for you to do what you love. If you're a teacher and if you're in this building, I need you to love what you do, because when your kids see someone loving what they do, they want That's to do They either want to be a part of your life because you're so in love with what you do, or they want to find a way to start doing what they love their their, themselves so i feel like that's why our role is so important um you know and that's why i appreciate restore more and and i think i said it earlier but your your brand your business and your brand are in alignment and and everything that you feel everything that you show about self-care i know that you all practice literally got to personally and professionally so
1: can I tell you one more thing that's so exciting? Cause it's like one of, it's like the millennial things and then like what happens when kids see representation. So. I mean, I step into the classroom and I'm literally 22 years old. I'm the youngest teacher there. I'm not from the South. And I tell 100 beautiful Black children that they can be scientists because I'm the sixth grade science teacher. And I'm showing them all these images of Black scientists and Mae Jemison and at the time Ben Carson, this was way before his political days, but neither here nor there. And I'm showing them all these examples of our brilliance and our excellence and when they went on to college, they would email me or Instagram me or Facebook me and say, I'm studying engineering. I'm studying bioengineering. I'm wow. going to be a doctor because of the things you said. And I literally remember looking back at one of my colleagues, Kim, my business partner, and saying, like, they really believed us. Like, we thought they could, but we just mm. said it, right? And so now, seeing my kids, like, graduate and take those spaces and occupy them is so beautiful. And the full circle moment for me yesterday was I got a text from one of my... Most amazing kids. They're all amazing. But um, this one has just done a really good job of staying in touch. And she said, I'm teaching sixth grade science, Miss Miles. Wow. It's really crazy because you taught me sixth grade science. And now I am exactly where you are. And this is a student that has um, always, always worked incredibly hard to overcome um, a learning disability that she happens mm. to have. And so we've always told her like, girl, this is no label. This is just a special gift that you get the privilege to work through. And she's never let anything stop her. Even at college, when she struggled, she would reach out and ask for support. And like her family, that school community was there. And so like, this is the power that leaders have, that educators have, that Mm -hmm. people that interact with children have, like we can literally help them see the greatness that we see in them so that they can actualize those dreams. So I was just super proud of her and I had to shout her out. And I'm going to tell her to go listen to this.
0: Those are, that is the tangibility. Is that a word? Yes, Um, the evidence. evidence. That's the evidence of restorative practices. You, you just sowing that seed. You just telling the kid that you care, even just giving folks a compliment today, might not ever show up to five, 10 years, so somebody has a kid of their own or professional, but that's that's where these types of things count. So it, it's like a lot of things in our country that we need most, unfortunately, we don't want to buy into because we can't see them, but you know, your social, your emotional, um, well-being is, is of the utmost importance. So I really appreciate you, Claudine, for taking the time Thanks. to join me. Where where can we find you? Is there anything else that we missed?
1: Oh yeah, you can find me at We Restore More if you're listening and you have a school that is interested in restorative practices, SEL or anti-racism. Please, please check out our website at We Restore More. And we're on every social platform, um, except for TikTok at We Restore More. I'm a little too old for that. I had to tell myself, like, that's the line. Mm-mm, that's the line, girl. But I'll be on there watching because there'd be <laughs> cool stuff. But I'm like, I can't do it.
0: I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I'm not on TikTok either. When you heard it here, please go visit Restore More. They're doing great work on every platform that she mentioned. Um, You won't want to miss out. Thank you for this conversation. Entrepreneurship, school leadership, restorative SEL. I love it. So if you like this episode, please share it and leave a comment with your friends. Go subscribe to our YouTube channel, SELeducators.com. By the time this episode comes out, I think we'll have all 200 episodes uploaded. So join us there at SELeducators.com on YouTube and SELeducators.com for our website. We'll see you next time. This is The Dash.